Hey guys, this is Paula Glover. Welcome to today's episode of Always Bet on Black. I am excited because today I have with me Barrett Hatches, CEO of Chicago Health Services. Barrett and I have been friends for just about 20 years. He's a friend, he's a mentor, and quite frankly, he is my laughing buddy. He has also served as president of four different utility companies and has gotten a PhD along the way. I hope you enjoy this conversation. I'll just first start by saying, Barrett, thank you for joining this you know, episode of Always Bet on Black. It's really good to have you here. Um, and I am looking forward to um, a really good discussion, but hopefully not too many laughs because I tend to go on a tangent and laugh a lot with you. Well, that's good. That's, <laughs> that's good. So. I'm happy to be here too. Yeah. So for those in our audience, I want to share a little bit about Barrett Hatches, who is the CEO of the Chicago Family Health Center. He was previously um, the CEO of Swope Health Health Centers as well. Health Services. Mm -hmm. Health Services. Um, He has served as president and or CEO or president and CEO of four different um, utility companies and, and has a Ph.D., Um, was a finalist to be the president of Southern University in Louisiana, as I understand it, correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so a pretty (laughs) um, storied, absolutely a storied career. I think that's the right word too, a storied career. But I'd like, um, Barrett, to start with you from somewhat of the beginning. Um, And so as I, I start to prepare, I understand that when you were a junior in high school, um, at is it Jackson Central High School in Jackson? Central Central High School. Central High School in Jackson, Mississippi. Um, you were the junior class president. Yes. 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 First black. First African American. First yeah. black. Mm-hmm. Um, and then your senior year decided to run for student council president. And won. right. Absolutely. And so, <laughs> talk talk a little bit about like what that what was that right to be mm. um, in a newly integrated school. To first become the class president is probably was probably a significant big deal as a teenager. And then to decide that you're going to be the student council president. Talk to me about like your thinking and how you got there. Well, I'll tell you, Paula, um, I was in the third class of integration of that of the schools in in Jackson, Mississippi. And so there had only been two other classes where there were any really black kids in the school because it was a predominantly white high school right down Jackson being the capital of Mississippi. This school was right across the street from the state capital. Mm-hmm. So it was like the city's high school. And, uh, I had, uh, two brothers and we, we were all a year apart. So I had a brother who was there as a senior, a brother who was a junior. And I came in the sophomore at that time, it was 10th, 11th, 12th grade. And I can tell you, I became president of, of the, uh, my junior class, not as a result of anything I wanted to do. I was forced into this role. Uh, by the other black students who said, you've got to run for class president. And I thought, no, I don't have any interest in that. At that point, I had no leadership that I could have recognized in my life. Mm-hmm. I said, I have no interest in that. But, you know, quite honestly, I was afraid of the kids. Uh, I had spent my first eight years in private school, in Catholic mm-hmm. school. And I, this was just my second year in public school. And I was afraid of the kids. I was afraid of the black kids who were from my neighborhood, but they treated my brothers and sisters that different because we went to Catholic school. And so they were not real friends. And so when they told me I was going to run, I felt threatened. And I said, okay. <laughs> so I thought, there's no chance I could ever win anyway. It's a predominantly white school. So they, they won't hurt me. And I'll go ahead and go through this motion. It'll be all over. That's really 
how I started my leadership career, really? I thought. Uh, but uh, people saw something in me that I didn't see in myself. And that's really what I could say about most of the things that I've done. So while I was a junior class president, uh, I had a, a, a day, a moment when I walked through the library where they hung up all of the presidents of, of every class in the 50 year history of that school in the library. And I said, I want my, I, I never said it to anybody, said it to myself. I really would like to have my picture up there. I'd like to be president of the student body. And so as it got closer to the time to throw your name in a hat, I decided I'd come on out. Now these same people who forced me into junior class president, I figured they would support me and they did. It was overwhelming support, but again, there's no way I could ever believe I was going to win because the numbers were not on our side. Right. So I never will forget that that election day and the principal called me and the other white guy into his office to tell who had won the election. And when I walked in his office, I saw my name circle, but I didn't know whether that meant I had won or I had lost. In or out. <laughs> it was in red. I had no idea. And and it was at the end of the school day. And I tell you, when he announced I won and he announced all the PA, walking out into that hallway when we, when we dismissed school for the day and to to be mobbed by all of the students, it felt like every student in the school came over to mob me to congratulate me. But what I remember about that day were the seniors who were graduating and almost to a person, they said to me, make us proud. And I just, I had no idea what, what I had done or what I was about to do. Uh, serving in, in those capacities were not really a challenge. That stuff was just natural for me, mm-hmm. but feeling the responsibility of doing this for all of these other black kids, that was challenging. I, I wanted to make them proud. I didn't want to do anything to embarrass them. And I was a, you know, uh, I wasn't the best kid. <laughs> you know, I, I got around. I was playful. I did a, did a lot of stuff. I did a lot of things as president of the student body just to make the, the other black kids know that I was all right. You know, I, I skipped school with them. I'd go to the bus station and skip class. I did a lot of crazy stuff. Wait, what were you doing at the bus station? Well, they had vending machines over there and they had oh, pinball okay. machines and it was okay. right across the street from the school. So you go to like Greyhound bus station. Yeah, all that. Well, some of that too. Some of that too. <laughs> Anything that wasn't quite right but wasn't wrong. You know, uh, uh, my grandmother used to say, uh, there might not be something wrong with this, but something not right. Well, I'd be right in the middle of that. I'd, <laughs> I'd find that edge and that's where I was comfortable. Uh, but that, you know, so the, the, um, the thing that I felt most proud about was the fact that the other black students and many white students at that point had to, had to be voting for me. Sure. Saw things in me that, that I didn't see in myself. I just didn't see it. And it was, it was a, a long time before I saw in me what others saw as it relates to leadership. Yeah. Uh, but they always put me in those positions. And that's what happened in, uh, in high school. If you, as you reflect on that now, what do you think it is that they saw in the 16, 17, 18-year-old Barrett? Yeah, they must have saw me. I wasn't a smart student. You know, academically, I wasn't a small, small student. In fact, when I was in, in Catholic school, almost every year I expected to fail. I, I didn't expect to be passed to the next grade almost every year. I was, 
I was not a smart student. And it wasn't that I didn't have the ability. Every report card, I, uh, final report card, every sister, every nun wrote the same thing. He has the ability, but will not apply himself. Mm-hmm. And that's, where I, that's who I was. It wasn't that I didn't have the ability, didn't have the skills to be a good student. I just didn't want to be. Just didn't want to uh-huh. be. So I think what, what others saw in me was the ability yeah. to do. And they felt, given the right platform, I would do. But yeah. that's not what I felt until I was thrusted into those positions. And it was only because I didn't want to disappoint them that I excelled in those leadership roles. But mm-hmm. they saw that. I didn't see it. So there's, got, there's, there's this other thing that, though, was going on, I would think, in that time, right? Because this is still a recently integrated school. And as you just said a few moments ago, some of the white students had to vote for you as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. And so um, even as now as we're thinking about right, our elections and where does the black vote go and, you know, where does the Hispanic vote go and these blocks. The truth of the matter is that I think for real leaders, there is a crossover. Mm-hmm. Right. The race, mm-hmm. the sex, the gender, none of that matters for real leaders people just go with the person they think can really, really lead them in the mm-hmm. time and in the way that they need. Would you, what do you think? Do you agree a- ab- with that? Absolutely. You know, um, I think about growing up and I was never taught to hate anybody. Right. Um, I didn't feel threatened by white students, whereas a lot of my peers did because they had been in public schools, all black public schools, all of their careers, and they were taught that white students were smarter. I was in an all-black Catholic school with all-white nuns, but nobody ever taught me that white students were smarter than me. Mm. I never heard that. And so I, while I didn't necessarily embrace white students when I went to the school, I wasn't afraid of them either. So I was able to communicate in a way that made them comfortable. And so that crossover appeal was just something that was natural for me. It was who I, it was, that's who I was. And mm. so they were able to see that and even even in those days when when their parents had to be saying something different to them, they felt different about me. Yeah. And the only way I could have been senior a vice president of the student body, I mean, uh, president of my senior class, junior class and president of the student body, the only way I could have done that is with white support. The only way yeah. it could have happened. Yeah. And and I remember uh, the I wanted to be student body president, but what I wanted more than that was to be named Mr. Central High School because that was the top prize. And so <laughs> when that day came, I knew I would be named Mr. Senior Class or Mr. Central High School. I didn't want Mr. Senior Class. That was for uh-huh. somebody else, I figured. And and I had told a group of, of black students that I just don't think they're going to allow me to be named Mr. Central High School. That's just a bit much. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I told them if I don't get named Mr. Central High School and they name me Mr. Senior Pre- Mr. Senior Class, I'm going to walk out of the assembly. And they say, we're all going with you. What? I, did, I didn't want that to happen, but I would have done it. I would have done it because there was no reason for me not to have been named Mr. Central High School other than for the times we were living in. Fortunately, I was named Mr. Central High School and everything went well. Uh, There's no big walkout in Jackson. But that's when I learned for the first time as a leader, people will follow you to do bad just as they will follow you to do good. If they follow you at all, you've got to be conscious of what you, how you're leading because people will follow you. Yeah, yeah. 
that's, you know, that's um, um, as I'm listening to you speak and I reflect on my own experiences, there are a couple of things that you said that stick with me. One, one is to really not being afraid, mm-hmm. right, of your white students, your white classmates. Right. Um, and, and having gone to an all white school myself, I totally understand what that means about what it means to have a fear in that situation, because I certainly had fear in that situation mm-hmm. um, at 15 and 16 years old. Um, but to not be afraid is a pretty powerful thing when you start to try to build coalitions, which is something that you've also done throughout your entire career. Right. So if you think about, and as you think back as to who you were then and all the things that you've accomplished and we'll cover it, what do you think that experience taught you, that lesson that you got at that age that you've carried with you? I, I think a couple of things. One you know, I, I said this earlier, you, you have to believe that people can see things in you that you don't see in yourself. You have mm. to believe that. That's Think about that, Paula. That's huge. It is huge. For you to, for you to say, I'm going to believe someone else's assessment of me over my own. That's, that's really big, especially for people with these kind of personalities, you know, the yeah. kind of person who has this, you know, nobody can tell you anything anyway. Right. So, <laughs> like us, like our personality. Right, 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 right. So to be, to to allow someone else to tell you something about you that you will follow. So that, that's that's one of the things that that I I learned and and that has carried me throughout my career. Another thing was some of those foundational pieces that I got from my grandmother and my mother that positioned me to be comfortable in any setting around anybody. Mm-hmm. I remember, uh, uh, you know, I, I grew up in Mississippi with my grandmother, but my mother lived here in Chicago. And in the summer times, I would come to Chicago from first grade through undergrad. And I remember the, the summer that I was going into my senior year when I was going to be president of the student body, my mother took me to a black restaurant. We had never gone to a restaurant like this, you know. One night we went to a black restaurant and she wanted to teach me how to eat properly with a fork and knife, how to cut chicken. Cause she was, she wanted to continue to be proud of me and put me in a position cause she knew how the exposure I was going to get. I had not had that. She knew how important it was in her own way. She was preparing me. And so uh, what, what she and my mother and my grandmother did in their own ways prepared me for all of the things that I've been able to do in my life, every single one of them. And it didn't take me long to reflect back on that, to say everything I've ever been able to do in my life is a direct result of the sacrifices that my mother and my grandmother made for me. That's, that's it. That's it. So you get through high school and I thank you for sharing that story. You know, um, We've known each other a long time, and I never heard these stories before. Well, well, let me put the last piece of this story, Paula, okay. uh, that, that would have been the crown jewel for me. Because you remember I, said, I told you, uh, I walked through that library, and I wanted to have my picture up on that, on that wall That's right. with all those other presidents. And wouldn't you know, after I became president of the student body, the school decided that they were no longer going to hang the pictures of student body presidents up in the library. They took them all down. Wow. So in essence saying, there ain't nowhere in the world we're going to ever put a black picture up on this wall. It's too precious. Yeah. So that rather than putting my picture up there, they took them down. That picture hangs in my house today. 
Really? They gave it to him. They said, we have no use for it. It, it, it is hung in, in every house. In case you thought we might there. change our and, mind. You might, so you just take it. You do, what you, you do what you want to with it because we have no use for it. Yeah. So yeah. my own personal dream that I had didn't occur. But for everybody else who wanted me to be those, have those positions, for them, it was all, it was all a victory. All of it was a victory for them. But isn't this also an example of how, in many ways, young people see the future differently than than we do? And because they see it differently, right, things change Mm -hmm. so that, that, that your classmates right, who may have been aware or not hyper aware that your picture was going to be on a wall, didn't really care about that. Even your white classmates, because they voted for you. Mm -hmm. But for those white adults, having your picture on the wall was their problem, right? They had an issue with that. And so then, but progress happens. Yeah. And I think about the moment that we are in this summer and, and when people ask me about it, I always think, you know, I'm hopeful because I think that young people are just not going to give up. Right. They are going to be relentless about this issue. And it kind of doesn't matter what barriers people put up and challenges they put up. They are relentless about this issue of all races. Mm-hmm. And, and makes me think, okay, well, yeah, it'll be different. Yeah, and they, They're doing it, Paula. They're conscious of what they're doing. Yeah. They have a sense of purpose. Yeah. I would say I wasn't in that group. Yeah, but the, yeah. the students who elected you probably were. They were. Right. I was I was not thinking like that. Yeah. I was not thinking like that. Yeah. And I know that didn't seem right. You know, how could you do that and not think that? But just No. It wasn't where my head was. Yeah. I was class treasurer and I can remember the first year that I ran because someone asked me to. And I couldn't figure it out. And I got elected because the person that I was running against, who was still a dear friend. Actually, his speech was, you should invite, you should elect Paula if you really want the money to be right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was his whole speech. He's like, I really don't want to be the treasurer. You should, you should elect her. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, and for four years, they did that. Mm-hmm. And I could never figure out why. But I think to your larger point, right, people see people who see you. And see you in a certain way. Sometimes you just got to trust that way. they know what they're talking about. You and perhaps trust. you don't know what you're talking right. about. Right. Right. They know you better than you know yourself. I'll, I'll say mm-hmm. again, that's huge yeah. to accept that. Yeah. It really is. Or at least they know your capabilities better right. than you know. Right. Right. Maybe that's it. They mm-hmm. know that's what your it capabilities. Is. Right. You've, so, you've shown them something to make them believe in you in a way that maybe you don't believe in yourself. Yeah. Yeah. That's an mm-hmm. awesome story. So you leave high school, you go to Jackson State, yes? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because yeah. I often remember you talking about how much you love Jackson State. I love Jackson State. Um, yeah. And then you start your career. And where did you, what was your first job that you had out of school? Uh, I did four years at Jackson And you know, I had the opportunity to go to many different colleges. I had scholarships every place. Never thought about going anywhere but Jackson State because my two brothers were there and I was at home. Never thought about going anywhere else. Uh-huh. Um, uh, I knew I wanted to major in political science, didn't know what I wanted to do with the degree, but I knew I wanted to major in political science because I always felt like the world that I lived in was based on politics. And I figured if I could learn to understand what that was really all about and how it works, I could probably end up doing anything. And that's what happened. Yeah. Uh, but I went to Jackson State and after four years, I graduated and I moved to Chicago. And I started my, it's, it's so funny that 
I started my career in Chicago, and here I am back in Chicago, full circle after moving 14 times. And I'm not at the end of the career, but I can see it from here. Uh, so I started in Chicago, and I started with uh, with Santa Fe Railroad. And what did you do there at the railroad? I, I started as a railroad as a special agent, a railroad detective. I had no idea what that job was. I was looking. I was looking for employment. And I, I went, I was walking downtown on Michigan Avenue and I live a mile from the Santa Fe, old Santa Fe headquarters. I live a mile from that place today. Um, but I was walking down the street and I said, I'm going to go in here and check out the railroad and see what they got. And I walked in and it was this black receptionist, female receptionist. And I said to her, I'd like to apply for a job. And she said to me, what are you looking for? I said, ma'am. I don't know. All I can tell you is I have a degree and I don't want to work on the tracks. And she said, this is, this is the way it happened. This is the way it happened, Paula. And she said, did you know we were hiring special agents? I said, no, ma'am. I had no idea. I don't even know what a special agent is. She said, well, you take these two pamphlets right here and you can interview with Mr. Quarles in a few minutes. Mr. Quarles was a black uh, human resource manager. I sat there and I read those two pamphlets. I went in his office and convinced him that all my life, all I ever wanted to be was a special agent. I had never, I never knew what it was, but I convinced him in those 15 minutes, I read that information. I had no idea the railroad had police. Had I known that I wouldn't have done some of the things on those tracks I did next to my house. I never would have done it. If I known they had police, I didn't know that. <laughs> so that's how I started my career as a special agent with, with Santa Fe railroad. And I, I worked here in Chicago for one month. It was the first time I spent all my summers here, but mm-hmm. I'd never been here in the wintertime. And come that February, when I started to work with Santa Fe, I, I told my boss one day on a Wednesday, I sure would like to get out of Chicago. He said, where do you want to go? I said, I don't care. Anywhere it doesn't snow. Because I had never been in this kind of cold weather. I told him that on Wednesday. Thursday, I went back to work. He said, we got a job in Houston. You want? I said, absolutely. I'll take it. And that was on Thursday. He said, you start Monday. I didn't tell my mother until Friday because I knew she was going to be devastated. And Friday night, I told her, Mama, you know, these people transferring me to Houston. I didn't tell her. So you ain't telling the truth. (laughs) No way, no. (laughs) I I said, these people transferring me to Houston. And she said, well, you're not going. You you don't know anybody down here. You have no business down there. She said, when they want you to go? I said, tomorrow. I packed my stuff, Paula. I realized that night I had declared my independence. Because I was doing something that my mother did not support. Didn't mean she didn't love me. It just mm-hmm. means she didn't support. It just meant I could never call her and ask her for any help because I'm doing something she didn't want me to do anyway. And I moved to Houston. I didn't know, I didn't have a place to stay. I didn't have a car. I didn't know anybody. All I had was a job. I flew in the Hobby Airport, stayed in the Ramada Inn across the street for the first three weeks. Guy I worked with got me an apartment a block from our, our job, and I moved in there and stayed, got married, and stayed there until I bought my first house. But I started right there, and then when I moved to Houston, um, you know, as a special agent with the railroad, uh, you have authority anywhere in the country that there's railroad property or, 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 or anything doing with the railroad, and you, you investigate all kind of stuff. But you have to be commissioned uh, by some local or state authority. Okay. And fortunately for me, I was commissioned as a special Texas Ranger, which gave me ultimate law enforcement authority across the country, pretty much, but certainly in the state of Texas. And, you know, to be young and black and to be a special agent, uh, be a special agent and a special Texas Ranger. Who saw that coming? 
you know. <laughs> so how was that? How did those first interactions when you meet people as this young black special agent with Texas Ranger, mm-hmm. what, how does that go down? The first interaction, how do people react to that? Sort of like disbelief. There's no reason to believe that, you know, unless you saw that, that gold badge on my, on my waist or that 45 on my hip under my shoulder. It's no reason to believe it. And I'm mm-hmm. such a nice guy, you know, so I don't come across as a law enforcement guy. I never have. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, there was nothing, nothing about taking people, arresting people that I enjoyed. Nothing about that I enjoyed. But as a plain, I always worked as a plainclothes detective. So, uh, really? yeah, I, I never worked in uniform, never drove a police car, always drove an unmarked car and always in plainclothes. Uh, I became president of the Houston Transportation Police Association, which is all the law enforcement agencies in, the, in and around Houston, from the PDs to the SOs. FBI, CIA, Port Authority, all of these organizations. And if you ask me how that happened, I don't know. But I became president <laughs> of that, that association. So as a result of that, you know, I was in and out of law enforcement places and people like you wouldn't believe. But I never, ever had friends who were in law enforcement. Never. I didn't want any friends because I realized it was a real stressful job. When I went to the academy, police academy, I realized it was a real stressful job and I didn't want to keep that around me all the time. I did because mm-hmm. that wasn't who I was. And uh, I, I remember how much I enjoyed the job. It's still today one of the best jobs I ever had when I worked undercover because I loved that stuff. I, I didn't have any training for it. I was just a natural. Uh, but I loved that stuff. But I also became a firearms instructor and a range master. So I, a, de- a defensive tactic. So I taught police how to defend themselves. I taught them how to shoot. Uh, you know, it was, it was amazing the things that I did in law enforcement. When, when I went in Mr. Coyle's office, I had no idea what that, what a special agent was. Uh, but you know, it was, it was like, uh, like you were saying earlier about someone else, uh, doing the work and getting the job done. I never had a job that I never had a job that I had the experience to do. Mm. Never had a job. If you ever looked at my resume prior to me doing a job, you never would have hired me for that job. But if you had looked at my resume and looked at the work I did, you would have thought that was a perfect person for that role. But I never had experience in any job I ever had until I did it. People trusted me. Just like those kids in high school believed in me. I had people in the corporate world who believed I could get a job done. Whether I had ever done it or not was never a question. So that would suggest, right, that it's not, and I've seen this, when I follow some some HR folks on LinkedIn, that having done the job does not necessarily qualify you for mm-hmm. the next job, but having mm-hmm. the skills. And so clearly there were some skills that you had mm-hmm. that Mr. Qualls knew would make you good at being right a special right, agent. Right, and clearly right. as a special agent, you had some skills that someone said, oh, he'd be really good as a defensive tactics teacher. Right. But none of this stuff was easy. Because, yeah. again, here I come as the first black kid doing this. And I wasn't welcome with open arms. You know, first after I met with Mr. Quarles, he said to me, good, come back Tuesday. We're going to have a second interview. So I went back that Tuesday to have the second interview. I went to his office. He said, let's walk down the hall. I had no idea what this was all about, Paula. We walked down the hall. He opened up his conference room door, and there are nine white men sitting around the table for my second interview. Wow. And the only thing that came to my mind, and this is the honest truth. I said, wow, 
I tricked this brother. I don't know what I'm going to do with these white boys. <laughs> I don't know what I'm going to do. <laughs> They're not going to go for the same thing. <laughs> but, it's a different okie doke. It's a different okie doke, and you got to you gotta be able to figure out which one to use, and, and obviously it worked. But but when I when I got to Texas, you talk about, it was the first time I'd ever really felt racism like that. I, really? I had never faced, I grew up in Mississippi. I was sheltered, so I didn't, other than what I experienced in high school, I didn't really feel racism like that. When I went to Texas, Texas was like, oh, come on in, you're welcome, and then they treat you really bad. So I never worked with a with another black special agent. And so little things like doing shift change, you know, when mm-hmm. I'm going when I'm going off or coming on and other agents are going off, coming on, we'd always, they would always go over to Ramada and have coffee. Well, I don't drink coffee. Uh, but I could have had some, and it was a long time before they would invite me to go with them. I couldn't, I couldn't go with them. These were the same guys, Paula. We all got on, have on guns. These are the same guys that I have to depend on my life on out at a stakeout or some other issue. Mm-hmm. But I was not welcome to go with them to have coffee. Did you trust that they would protect you even though you weren't welcome? Yeah, yeah. I, I had to. I had to believe that they would. Do you looking um, back? Do you think they would have? I th- I think there were some that would, and some that would look the other way. I remember making a call one night, and it wasn't my call. Somebody else's call, and I heard it, and I was close. And I said, "Well, you know, I'll I'll meet you over there." And I got to the location, but I stayed in my car. This guy almost never showed up, and I thought, "What is this all about? Is he expecting me to go up in this place on his call, and he's not going to even show up?" What is this all about? So I just turned my car around and left. You did? Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was, because I wasn't a gung-ho kind of police. That wasn't who I was. <laughs> I was, that was a job. I wasn't crazy. Uh, so, so I don't I, know. I don't know. I you know, I, some of them would have and some of them were questionable. But I would have showed up for them anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Barrett Hatches was the popo. Yeah, a, that that's what we need to put on your headstone. He <laughs> nobody, has, nobody would believe po-po. it. Nobody would so, believe it. So, all right. So, how do you make that transition right from law enforcement and Texas Ranger to energy? My my, my I left law enforcement and went stayed with the railroad and went to uh, work in the law department with the railroad, where I investigated all of the non criminal activities. So I investigated all the fatality crossing accidents. I recreated accident scenes and I investigated why this accident occurred and, and what this person should have, should have been able to see in their car from 25 feet, 50 feet, 100 feet, 175. So when we had fatalities that went to, to court, I sat at the table with our counsel. And, and the photographs that I would take of the scene would be plastered around the courtroom. So I was real proud of my work. I mean, it was really, really intensive work. But again, I saw a lot of the bad stuff. Uh, I investigate all the employees' accidents and injuries because the railroad does not have workman's compensation. They operate on a federal law called FELA, and which means an employee can sue his or her employer. Mm-hmm. With workman comp, if, if you're at work and you get your thumb ca- cut off, there's a work comp scale that says the value of that thumb. With the railroad, it's whatever a jury would give you. And so investigating accidents and injuries is entirely different. And, and so I did a, a lot of fatalities, a lot of them. And, and that stuff kind of, that stuff shakes you up. 
You know, you get called at two o'clock in the morning and say, get to this scene. Some kid has been, you know, hit at a crossing and you try to make it out there as quick as you can get there to, to, to document the scene. Cause you, you have the defense for the, for the organization. Uh, you have to be able to defense for the organization. So that was, I moved from, from, um, law enforcement to that job. And I didn't leave law enforcement cause I wanted to, uh, if, if, if you allow me to just tell this really quick story. Please, why no, I left please law tell it, please. It was the best job. And I still look back on it being one of the most fun jobs I ever had. Um, I didn't see it as dangerous. I didn't feel that. I was so well-trained. Um, I just didn't feel danger. I wasn't crazy, but I wasn't afraid of anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I worked undercover a lot. And and so there were many, 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 many nights I slept next to my wife with my gun on. Uh, but that was, that was who I was. That was what I was doing. And then when we had our daughter, uh, she was about three months old, we drove to Mississippi to take her home for the first time. And while I was at home, got a call to take this undercover assignment back in a part of Texas. I had my brother who had moved to Houston at the time, meet us in Beaumont, Texas at a McDonald's mm-hmm. restaurant and to, to take my wife and my daughter back to Houston. I was going on this assignment and Paula, when they drove out of that parking lot, I knew I could never do this job again. And I knew I had to quit because all of a sudden I felt something I had never felt in my life. And that was a responsible, a deep responsibility for raising this child. Come I didn't on. see that as, as well. I had to come home to this baby and you can't do, you couldn't do that job afraid and scared and all that kind of stuff. And that was one of the last assignments I took in less than less than six weeks from that day. I moved from Houston, Texas to Topeka, Kansas, working in the law department because I knew I just couldn't do it anymore. Just couldn't do it. And uh, I didn't think I could get over that hump mm-hmm. of being concerned about having to come home every night. Um, and so I, st- I, I spent uh, the next seven years uh, working in the law department, uh, investigating. I moved, I moved three times with yeah, moved three times with that. And and then after the railroad, I got a call one day from a lady I had met when I lived in Topeka, Kansas, who was named the first black vice president of a major utility company in the Midwest. And she asked me to come and work with her. I, I said, to her, no way. I have no interest in doing any of that. Uh, I've been with the railroad 15 years. It's not a happy marriage, but it ain't all bad either. You know, <laughs> I moved six times. I bought six houses. You know, we're doing, we're doing fine. I'm, I have no interest. And she continued to ask me for a year and a half. And one day she said to me, would you fly over here and have lunch with me and the president of the company? I thought, have lunch with a president of a utility company? And y'all going to fly me from Albuquerque to Kansas City to do that? I said, yeah, I got to eat anyway. Yeah, I'll go. <laughs> <laughs> the president and I went to lunch. Bernita didn't go to lunch with me, just the president and I. And she wanted to hire me as director of customer service. And we came back from lunch and sat in her office. He sat right next to me and offered me this job and told me, here are the six things I need you to do. And as he was sounding off what those six things were, Bernita, as a vice president, was sitting there typing those things out. And she typed the six items out, gave them to me. I looked at them and, and he said to me, the president said to me, so Barrett, what do you think? And I said, this is honestly what I said to her. I said, you know, Mr. Johnson, I'm looking at this list. I'm just thinking when I get all this stuff done, what am I going to do the next day? I laughed. 
He didn't laugh. He didn't laugh. Nor did Benita laugh. And he, but he leaned over to me, Paul. And this is real significant. He leaned over to me in my chair and he said, let's just say I'll make it worth your while. And he got up and left. This is the same president of Simcoe Gas mm. in Michigan that sent me to Alaska as president of a company we bought. He was still making it worth my while for what I did then. And, and a little personal story here. After I left Instar to go to Nipsco, he and I had one of the hardest conversations. He was so disappointed because his plan was to make me his successor. Uh, but this opportunity came up, you know, to run a $3 billion utility company plus two other multi-million dollar companies. And, uh, and I had no choice but to leave. But I left that company after being there uh, three and a half, almost four years. He gave me a letter. He sent me a letter after I'd been gone for two months. He said, Barry, it was three paragraphs. One was saying, Barry, you and I had a, a tough conversation before you left. I've gotten over it, and I hope you have too. The next paragraph, because he and I had a wonderful relationship. The mm -hmm. next paragraph was, um, I want to congratulate you on what you did for Simcoe and Instar. And, and, show, and the third paragraph, to show you how much I appreciate it, I hereby vest you in the organization, even though you were not here to be vested, long enough to be vested. That's wow. unbelievable, Paula. That's wow. unbelievable. So I qualify for a pension from a company that I was not even there long enough to, to, uh, to didn't serve long enough to get one. Wow. That's amazing. That is amazing. That's amazing. So when you and I first met, I think you were in Kansas, maybe Kansas City. It's prior to Semco, yep. or maybe you were just yep. at Semco 2099. Where? No, I was in I was in Instar. I was in Alaska. You're in Instar in, in Alaska. Okay. Yeah. But so I want to I want to kind of talk a little bit about skills again, right? Because mm -hmm. you you're you know you're an agent, undercover agent with a 45 on your hip. Yeah, that was my weapon of choice. Your weapon of choice. Okay, we want to make sure we clarify. <laughs> then you become the director of customer service. Mm -hmm. And so what do you think were the skills that you had in this role? Then, and, and you were in legal at the railroad, right? Mm -hmm. Investigation, lead mm -hmm. investigations. What were the skills in that role that you think transferred and made it really good as a director of customer service? As you reflect back, obviously they saw something. Yeah, it, it was the same thing. Bernita, who was the vice president, saying, you know, you're going to be a good director of customer service. I had never run. And customer service for them was running a call, a 100-seat call center. Mm -hmm. You know, we answered over a million calls a, a, a year in this thing. And I'd never, I'd never been in a call. I had never called my own utility company. So I didn't know anything about a call center. But she, had, she, she said, I know you can do this. And the skills that I learned as a, uh, a special agent and then as an agent in the law department, um, the, the commonality was there in, the, in both of those jobs was how you treat people, mm -hmm. how you treat people. And that's simple, but that's huge also. And so when I got to this call center, you know, to tell me that uh, you need to manage these folk to make sure they're, they're giving good customer service to our customers. Nobody had to tell me that. That's who I was. That's, mm -hmm. that's all about it. So I knew how to do that, and I knew how to get others to do it too. But you talk about a dog fight. Wow, that was one of the toughest jobs I ever had. The, the gas company was doing so poorly from a customer service standpoint. 
the call center had a, an abandonment rate as high as 35%. Wow. So 35% of people who call into this utility company, some of them who, who smell gas, couldn't even get through. So my first six months, and when I got there, it was probably as high as 20% when I got there in June of that year. By the end of that first year, from June to December, I had it down to 8.9%. The next year, I had it down to 5.5%. At this point, you got to say you got too many people in the call center. Well, I was working for a company who didn't believe in laying people off, so you had to figure out what to do with all these people. Uh, but we, we went from one of the worst customers. We were so bad, Paul, and you, you can understand this. We were so bad that the utility commission put an office in our building to deal with all the customer complaints. That's how bad we were before. You I got were there. really bad. That's bad. That's bad. That's bad. That's bad. But so let, but I would like to suggest that perhaps the other skill that you you clearly have, and I don't know how you define it, right, is that you have a level of inquisitiveness that makes you want to figure out what really happened. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes with customer service, when I work customer service, that that's kind of a requirement, right? That it's it's what the company says happens sometimes or what the company processes. And then it's what the customer said happened or the, how the customer experienced that interaction with the company. And then you're trying to figure out, okay, so what really was that dynamic so that this person, the customer is satisfied with the result or at least right. our handling of the result. Absolutely. And there's a level of in, um, being inquisitive that I think that maybe it requires. What, what do you think? And, and Absolutely. You, you know, one of the things I say about that job is to this day, and certainly back then, I never knew how to pull up a customer's account on the computer. <laughs> never did that. Because when a customer got to me, it wouldn't had nothing to do with what was on that computer. That's right. That wasn't going to save me. <laughs> my my whole you. idea was to keep, it, keep that call from going to the vice president and the president. So I had to make things right. I had to figure out what happened. But looking at a screen and looking at your bill, that that ain't that ain't gonna help me. Yeah. So so you're right. You have to be willing. You have to be attentive. Mm-hmm. And and again, it's it's a skill to you know anymore when you go out and anywhere in this country, you see today it's even more of a skill to know how to treat people. And there's value in that. Yeah. There's value in treating people and de-escalating a situation. Well, that whole law enforcement thing helped me with that. Yeah. You know. Although, during those days, to me, we, we can de-escalate it if you want to, or we can get into something else. It's, it's, it's your choice. Because you're packing. Uh, I, I got it like that, you know? So, <laughs> and I wasn't afraid of anybody. And I, I've always been a little guy, you know? So I wasn't threatened to show, you know, I show up. Nobody was afraid because I showed up. But I don't have any scars on me either. Got to keep the pretty pretty, <laughs> right? So. It wasn't that I wasn't scuffling. I just knew what to, how to take care of myself. Okay, so I thought you would say, I knew where to put the bandages so no one knew. I knew where the make was supposed to go. Um, okay, so that's really interesting, Barrett. So you 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 do this and then right, as you said, the CEO, um, essentially kind of you call it rewarding, but really mm-hmm. he's he's taking advantage of what he has in terms of what you do really well and saying, Okay, what other problems can this person solve for me? Right, right. Right. And you eventually become president of NSTAR and you move mm-hmm. to Alaska. Right. And right. I can recall you telling me once, and maybe this is no longer true, that you love living in Alaska more than anywhere else in the world. More that was your favorite place. place. Yeah. More than any place. I will move it, move back there in the morning. 
I love Alaska. Tell me about that. Why? What is it about Alaska? The people were so inviting. And when you think about it, almost everybody in Alaska had to come from someplace else. And they had to be welcome into the place. So that's the first thing for me. And, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to get this all twisted up. I was president of the only natural gas company in the state. So I knew everybody. It's a small state. Only, at the time, there was only 600,000 people in the whole state. And about 250,000 of them were in Anchorage, where I live. So I, know, I knew everybody. Everybody mm-hmm. knew me. You see them at church. You see them at the grocery store. You see them downtown. You see them at school. So you knew everybody. So it was a real real big community that you were part of. And I loved everything about it. Black folk was so real. It was unbelievable. And it was so tight. So together. What does that I still, mean that they were so real? Not shady. Not you know, some, some of the stuff we do to each other, Listen, you know, I didn't feel that there. Don't criticize me like that. <laughs> <laughs> still today, some of my best friends, uh, yeah. are, are still in Alaska. In fact, I go to a party almost every year for the last five years in in Vegas that they do in December. And, you know, they still treat Ann and I as part of the family. Yeah. It's just, just really special. But it was, it was just something special about being there. And uh, I, I, I truly do mean it when I tell you it was my favorite place to live. And the people were nice and just experience. Uh, Alaska was nothing like what I grew up thinking it was, what I was reading in the books. It was nothing like that. You know, yeah. I expected to go up there and see igloos. You know, I didn't expect to see houses, you know, <laughs> and stuff like that. Uh, but but it was an amazing place. It's, a, it's, it's an amazing place. Was it difficult to convince your wife and your daughter to go to Alaska? <laughs> now, here's another one of these stories, Paula. That's okay. You, you know me and I'm, Everything I'm telling you is absolute truth. This is what happened. So we bought the gas company, Simco, the company I was with in, in Michigan. We bought the gas company. And, you know, when you buy these companies, you have to make this deal work. And if you got a, a, a leadership team up there who's been there for 40 years, it's harder for them to make the kind of changes you need to make in a newly acquired company. Right. So the five of us who reported to the CEO were all in, in the conference room in Michigan one day. And we were all complaining about what the, what the president up there and his team what would not do and how they were pushing back on everything. And the CEO said, you know, I'm going to make an executive decision. We shocked all of us because that's not, that's not the way we did things. He pulled out this little plastic calendar out of his wallet. And he said, um, at the end of December, I want my man up there running that company. And all of us are going to sleep better at night. Let's move on. And he was pointing in my direction. Now, he had not had a conversation with me about going up to his president. <laughs> I had to leave the meeting because I had to do some lobbying stuff in D.C. So I flew to D.C. He and I, I didn't call him. We didn't talk. I was already scheduled to go up there in a week for their Christmas party. We own several different companies around the country. And a corporate officer had to go to a holiday party at one of our companies. I was slated to go to Alaska because I was head of HR and was heading up the integration team between mm-hmm. the, to bring the company in. So I was taking my wife and daughter with me. So we flew up that night. I still had not said a word to them about us going to be moving there. We flew up that night. And so just before we land, I said to them, I said, you know, we, all, we weren't going to be there for a day. I said, you know, we all take a good look around because you never know where you end up in both of them. So, oh, yeah, right. We're going to end up in Alaska. 
So we go to the Christmas. First, I go over to the office and I bring the president in and his four officers and say to them, effective the end of the month, you guys are no longer needed at the organization. I'm doing that <gasps> in my HR capacity. My HR and my head of integration capacity. Okay. I bring them all in. So you all got change of control agreements. We're going to trigger them the end of the end of the month and wish you all well. You've done a good job. Go and be well. That's my job. Then we leave there and we go to the holiday party. Now in Alaska, everybody goes to the party. It's not like we do in the law for day. We mad with our company. We don't go to the function. I ain't on it. Like, everybody and their spouses go. So we all get there. And in the middle, not in the middle, on the front end of the event, the president got up, went up and stopped the band and said, I have an announcement to make. He said, Simcoe has decided that they no longer need our service. He named off his vice president, no longer need our service. They all stood up. Then he said, I would like for you guys to help me welcome your new president and his family. That's how my wife and daughter found out <gasps> when we moved to Alaska. That's how they found out. So when you, <laughs> so many That's questions. So when you, one, told them, listen, your services are no longer needed. Did they know that you were going to be the, C mm -hmm. the new president? Mm -hmm. Did mm -hmm. you tell them that? Mm -hmm. Yep. I said, so you, you guys are leaving. Them. I'm the new sheriff in town. <laughs> and, yep. and at the party. So yep. what does your wife, what does Anne and Sine say, your wife because, and your daughter? Because they're very political and we've been in these environments. My daughter was raised in this kind of environment. They knew the right thing to do. They smiled and they, oh, yeah, we're looking forward to it. And it's amazing how all the people came over to my wife and daughter and started telling what beauty shops to go to, what grocery stores were the best. And the, and the officers, the president officer, was standing over by themselves pretty much. It was almost like the crowd said, well, ding dong, those witches are dead. Let's they go to the new like, witch. Well, let's move on. <laughs> let's move to the new witch. Wow. But that's the way my daughter, my wife and daughter found out we moved to Alaska. Wow. I never so, had a chance to tell them. But they went? Hmm? They went? Yeah. But, but, you know, I had said to my family, because we had moved so much, I had said to them, wherever we were when Sine started high school was where we are going to stay. So we actually moved to michigan when she started high school i had no idea i no reason to think i couldn't stay there four years mm -hmm. uh but it was it was her it was between her junior and senior year that i got this opportunity so i said to both of them i said i'm going to keep my promise we'll just have to figure out how we maintain these two households until you graduate because i'm going to keep my promise and I said, you don't have to say anything now. Just let me know. So imagine this. Everybody I know, as I'm telling them, moving to Alaska, everybody was saying, well, how your wife and daughter feel? I said, oh, they're fine. They're fine. I didn't know that they were fine. I, <laughs> you didn't I had no idea. Coming. I didn't know where they were coming. Uh, and then one day, I never forget this. It was at the Super Bowl. I was at the Super Bowl down in Atlanta. And uh, my daughter called me and she said, Daddy, I've made up my mind. I said, OK. And I remember being on a like the 15th floor of this hotel and I'm walking closer to the window because I knew I was going to have to jump after she told me she wasn't going to move to Alaska. <laughs> she said, Daddy, we're family and we should be together and I'm moving to Alaska. We're moving to Alaska together. She said, but I want a new car. <laughs> and you said, I said, okay. I said, okay. That's cheaper than trying to maintain two households and that's where we did it. That's where we did it. So if you ask me how I felt about Alaska, I'll tell you the best place I ever lived. My wife would say she loved it. My daughter said it was a good adventure. Yeah. Okay. She was there for her senior. She moved there her senior year. And um, she left two days after she graduated and started college at KU. And so then you leave Alaska. 
and you then go at some point, right, to become president and CEO of NIPSCO. Right. um, As well as CEO of Kokomo Gas, Kokomo Gas. Uh Uh-huh. In Northern Indiana, is that gas company as well? Fuel and light, uh-huh. Fuel and light. So how long did you stay in Alaska before you now have to pick up and go again? Um, a little over two and a half years. So you... And, yeah, I, and you, I, I... Go ahead. No, you go ahead. Hardest move ever made. Hardest did not want to leave. Did not want to leave Alaska. Because you really enjoyed Alaska. I really enjoyed it. Did not want to leave. So I want to I want to talk about that, but I want to backtrack just a little bit because you did say earlier that you and your family have moved 14 times. Mm-hmm. How has that been right for many of I think our listeners, certainly for me, when you have kids, you move when you have to move. But it always feels like a little bit of a struggle when you're you mm-hmm. know, uprooting your family um, to join you on whatever that endeavor is. Was it hard for you or did you and your wife have kind of an understanding um, and, and talk a little bit about that. I mean, I kind of, I probably know a little bit more because I know you've yeah. moved a lot since then, but how do you manage all that? Well, you know, I think the first thing was that my wife always had a lot of confidence in me and my ability to get things done. There again, she believed and had confidence in me in a way I didn't. Yep. And so every time we moved was because I got promoted when I was at the railroad, I moved six times. Every time you get promoted, you had to move someplace. Every time you get another job, you had to move someplace. That's just the way the railroad operated. Uh, and so what we did was made a conscious effort never, ever to complain about having to move. And so my daughter didn't grow up in the house hearing us complain and grumbling and raising hell because we got to move again. Oh, God, we got to move again. Oh, I don't want to. Never heard that. She never heard that. So her experiences of moving were different. Yeah. Now, by the time she graduated from high school, which everybody will say to you, don't ever move a kid this senior year of high school. My daughter didn't have, didn't impact her at all. Wasn't a big deal. Because by that time she had moved nine times. Um, but, but it's all about how positive the opportunity was for us. And when I look at that child today, I am so happy we moved the way we did. And what mm-hmm. that did for her, that exposure that that gave her. And she's an only child, but you wouldn't know it. I mean, she doesn't meet strangers. She's comfortable anywhere she goes. She's she's more comfortable in places than I think she should be. But she has mm-hmm. she's had more exposure than I had at, at different ages. So it worked really well for her. She actually got into the University of Kansas as a result of these moves we all made. Mm-hmm. We we took her there one day for a, a tour of the campus, bringing students and parents in. And so during one of the breaks, the director of, uh, of admissions had just presented. I said, Sinead, let's go over and ask this guy whether or not you've been admitted. And so we called him on a break and he said, he said, I don't know, but I'll make a phone call. So he went over and called and he said, oh yeah, I remember now. And then he hung the phone up. He said, yeah, we admitted you on Wednesday. She said, he said, aren't you the young lady that moved around nine times? And aren't you the young lady that moved as a result of this guy right here? He knew all this stuff because she put it in a letter. I said, Sine, do you realize what this means? This guy's the director of admission. You know how many students he brings to me? He he knows your story. Yeah. You got you got a, you got a, you got somebody on campus who knows you already. You you have nothing but upside here. Yeah. I couldn't believe that. Yeah. But that's what it did for her, and it still does it for her. In fact, she she's she's who she is as a result of all our moves. So, what did it do for you? What did all that moving do for you in terms of how you? 
you know, thought about your own career and the pace of work and all of that? You know, some parts of it was never, I got the feeling of never finishing anything. Mm. And people brought me in to fix stuff. Mm-hmm. And when it gets fixed, I, I've never had a job where I was a maintainer. Everything's fine. You know, you just maintain and keep it like this. Never had a job like that. My job was always because someone working right, bring me in because they, they knew I could do it. Just like Vernita, when she brought me into the customer service, I had never had a job like that. I had nobody reporting to me. And then all of a sudden I got 125 people. But she, she believed I could do what needed to be done. But she also said to me, she said, Barrett, I'm going to tell you right now, my biggest challenge with you is going to be keeping other people from taking you away. And I thought, who in the hell wants me? Mm-hmm. Who wants me? So that's what happened. Um, it, just opportunity after opportunity. And so I realized this is just going to be my career. Yeah. I'm, I'm never going to stay at one place as long as I stay with Santa Fe 15 years. That's just not going to be part of my career. I'm going to be in and out of places. And I'm okay with that. So, you know, you, people bring you in to fix something, right, company. That means you got to have some tools. Mm-hmm. There's got to be some tools in that box that you're using to be able to do that, even if each entity is a little bit different. Share with me what those tools are. What are the tools that you use for that? My, my, my number one tool is the three things I think a CEO has responsibility for, from my perspective. One, you got to have vision, you got to understand where you need to take the organization. When, when, my, when my president at Simco called me after lunch one day and asked me to go after a, a series of meetings, he was taking the senior leadership team through and asked me to go to lunch with him. As soon as I got in the car, he said to me, he said, Barry, you have vision. Those other guys don't have vision. I'm going to tell you, Paula, for a year and a half, I didn't have the nerve to ask him what that meant. I had no idea. and no idea what he was talking about. So, so first, you got to have the vision. Second, you got to be able to assemble the right people to execute Mm -hmm. all of the strategies necessary to achieve that vision. Mm -hmm. And three, you got to support them. And that support can mean a lot of different things. So for me, because I was in and out of industries that I knew very little about, I had to find the best talent to put around the table. And this is the hard part. I had to listen to them. Mm-hmm. I, I was a leader, but I had to listen to them because they were the, they had the skills. I I can make the decisions. I was comfortable with that, with their knowledge, and not always mine. I was comfortable with that because I knew how to manage the consequences, had, if I needed to. So finding the right people, regardless of who they were, finding the right talent to put around that table, and listening to them. Now you tell me what you would want any better than to be reporting somebody who values what you bring. And if you got somebody who value what you bring, you'll bring it all day, every day. Yep. Without, without, without hesitation. 24 hours a day, no problem. Saturday and Sundays, no problem. Because you value me. That's the two. That's one of those tools. And people know that. They hear it and they see it in you. You can't buy that. You can't buy that any place. That's just who I am. Mm-hmm. I don't have. That's not who I became. That's who I am. So, so I, my, my, my greatest strength is finding the right environment who needs what I bring. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Okay. And for me, I didn't find those environments. They found me. Mm-hmm. So I never applied for but my first job out of college at Santa Fe. That was it. All these other jobs came to me in weird ways. Mm-hmm. <laughs> in really strange. Who would think I didn't apply for that job in this school, didn't even know it existed. Somebody else saw me, said something to the chairman, told the chairman, he needs to talk to me. I didn't know the job. I didn't know the company existed. I didn't pay attention to it. I'm walking in his office. He said, I want you here as CEO of my company. Mm-hmm. I thought, what? I don't even know y'all. He said, well, I know you, and I've been watching you for a long time, and I know you can do what I need to get done here. And he told me, I'm not looking for a black CEO. Just looking for a CEO. I want to be clear about that. I know lots of black folk. <laughs> I, he said, I wouldn't go to Alaska to find one. That's for sure. <laughs> so I can, I, you know, it, it's interesting, Barry, that at least I can validate because the three things that you've outlined, right? Having a vision, assembling the right people and supporting them are absolutely the things that you did for me when we worked together at AIM. Mm. Mm. Like <laughs> hearing you articulate, I'm like, that's exactly what that was. And it's actually probably what I try to mimic with Mm -hmm. my own team, Mm -hmm. you know, but there's something else that's about, about you that I think I I certainly learned from you um, in a really subtle way, not subtle, but it is, you know, and I've shared this with people is being someone that people like being kind or funny or whatever, whatever that being someone that people like as a leader, Mm -hmm can have, um, I think, big rewards. It makes people want to stretch themselves. Right. 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 They don't want to disappoint you. That's for sure. They yeah. don't want to disappoint you. Yeah. And they'll reach deep down inside of themselves to do something you expect them to do. Yeah. And they'll figure out how to get it done. Yeah. It's, it's, it's one of the most amazing things. I mean, think about me coming out of um, um, railroading to uh, energy, uh, and I did a stand in the salt company to healthcare. Think so. So, how you do that? There's no commonality. It, it's just how you treat people. It's leadership. It's how you yeah. treat people. And but, it doesn't matter what the industry is. They're yeah. all the same. I deal with people, not the product. That's the but, difference. Yeah. But those skill sets and those tools that you have, let, let's move to healthcare. I think um, probably in this day and time in particular are really important for healthcare. Mm-hmm. Really, mm-hmm. really important. And so I wanted to know if you would share a little bit about what this last six-month journey has been for you, leading a healthcare system in clearly the most significant health crisis we've had in this country in 100 mm-hmm. years, Right. this right. pandemic. Right. Um, how have you been able to show up the way that you've been showing up for the people that you, not only that you serve in the hospital in your system, but also the, the folks, the essential workers and others who actually work for you. Yeah, it, it, it is without a doubt the toughest assignment I've ever had. Hmm. And what's good about it is that I have been built for this. Hmm. I wouldn't have known that. Wouldn't have known that because I, I tried to get out of here last year, early in the year. And so, you know, I've done enough, let me move on. And and I get a call from my board chair saying, uh, you know, Barry, this is exact word. I hope you realize God has you right where he needs you to be. 
I thought, why you put that on me? I'm a Catholic, so you can so put your trip on me easy. So I say the rest of my life. Now you, you got, we got him for another three to five. <laughs> he ain't going nowhere. But but it's been the toughest thing I've ever had to do. And this has been a real rough, a rough year. And, you know, I'll fast forward to last week uh, to tie this quickly together. Um one of the toughest parts about this is paying attention to all of the people inside the organization, you know, in particular those who report directly to me, yeah. making sure they're taking care of themselves and, you know, making sure they're not in this office every day and making sure they're managing the stress that this is causing in life, you know, cause I can see it. I know when they're not being who they are cause I've had enough time with them. Um, but at the same time, Paula, there's nobody checking on me. They're not coming to me saying, Barrett, how you doing? I saying? So last week, uh, I had a session with them where I talked about the importance of taking care of yourself. For me, I've learned to walk. I've learned to do things that I never did before that give me some balance in life. And I said, if you guys don't take care of yourself and you get sick, I can't run this organization without you. So I need you to pay attention to what you're doing. So last week, we had a staff meeting, and I was saying, you know, I was not going to come to the office today. I was just going to work at home. And, uh, but I felt like the walls were closing in on me and I knew I had to do something about it. So, you know, it's important to recognize when this stuff is impacting you. And I'm just so, so thankful that I, that I am. I said, I had to come to work. And so I shared that with them and I said, you know, um, so I have my own struggles. Then a day later, I bring in our behavior, behavior health, uh, uh, officer, I said, take us through some anxiety stuff, some other stressors, relievers, those kind of things. And while we were doing this, one of my vice presidents said, one of my chiefs, my CFO said to me, he said, Barrett, I hope you don't take this the wrong way. But it meant so much to us yesterday for you to tell us that you're dealing with some of the same stressors. I said to them, it's not that I'm not dealing with it every day like you. It's just that I was brought up in a work environment where nobody cared about your feelings unless they were feelings about your shareholders. Mm-hmm. Nobody cared about how you felt. You can't come talking no emotional stuff to them. That's not, that's not the world I grew up in. But in this world, it's all about that sense of mission, that sense of caring. And if you don't connect with people like that, you can't lead them. And so for me to go through those other industries the way I did and to end up now in healthcare for the second time, this is, again, this is no stretch for me. This is who I am. I'm a caring, compassionate person. You could have seen that when I had that 45 on my hip. Now, I could talk to you pretty ugly sometime if I needed to, but I didn't mean no harm. You know? <laughs> I didn't mean no harm. It's if I need to gun. get the job done, you know, I get the job. It would take to get the job done. Uh, but I'm a very caring and compassionate person. I got that from my mother and my grandmother. Yeah. Watching my grandmother tell us to take care of the, the old lady next door. Uh, to mow her yard and don't take any money from her. Go to the storefront, cut the lady's grass across the street. Go over there. I think I heard Miss Hattie fall. Go over there and help up. Anyway. That's why I learned that. That's that's what I use here today. Yeah. But that's that has to be who you are to to manage these healthcare operations in times like these. It's got to be who you are because yeah. this this situation is taking everything you got. And you know, I just had uh, had lunch with my chairman. I was telling him it's since the end of February, it's been like one long day. Just mm. one long day that I never wake up 
to see different the next day. It's just one long day. And I know that everybody in this organization and the 35 patients that we serve depend on the decisions that I make every day. They don't care that this stuff is stressing me out. You better deal with that and come on in here and run this organization. But, you know, I've had enough experiences in my life to know how to, how to put that over here and I get my release and not let this stuff stack up on it. And I got a wife and daughter that, that'll be very honest with me. Always have been. Uh, my wife told me one day, years ago, I was with a utility company. I came home one day and, and uh, I don't know what, what was said. I don't know what I said. But she turned around to me and all she said to me was, you're not on that job. And I went back in the bedroom. I thought, what the hell did I say? You know, when you're so used to <laughs> running <laughs> things. Yourself moment. Yeah, you go home and you, you ain't running nothing up in here. <laughs> you check but yourself. Some, sometimes that stuff slips. So <laughs> I'm so happy to have a wife and daughter who've always been comfortable being honest with me at the same time they're, they're extremely supportive. Sure. So when I talked about earlier how everything I've ever been able to achieve in my life is because of my mother and my grandmother. I have to add my wife and my daughter to that. They've allowed me to be who I am. Yeah. They've allowed me to be the person that my mother, and my grandmother uh, developed and caused to be. And they, they, they didn't push against any of it. So they, they never said, I'm not moving again. You know, I told Anne as much as I loved her, if it were her job saying we moved to Alaska, that's when it would have been over for me. I, I wouldn't have made that trip. That wouldn't, that would have been done. I would have said, you know, I love you and everything. I ain't leaving here. I ain't moving on. No, Alaska, some unknown like this. But she, she is, I, I don't get it, except to say that God makes people for, like that for people like me. Sure. And She's we your met person. 16 years, you know, 40, 50 years ago, been together ever since, because that's where it's supposed to be. Hmm. That's where it's supposed to be. So there are a couple of things that you just a couple of things I want to touch on because we talked about kind of being able to share with your team um, at Chicago Health that, you know, sometimes, you know, self-care, the importance of self-care and that you feel stressed just like they feel stressed, even mm -hmm. if it looks different. Um, and a lot of the conversation that certainly we're having in the energy industry with leaders is about authentic leadership mm -hmm. and showing vulnerability. Right. And right. how, what that looks like and, and how do you display that and how it's important for employees to see that in their leaders. Mm -hmm. um, and so what I'd ask is what kind of advice would you give someone who is, um, wants to be a leader or, or budding leader, moving into leadership role about what it means to be an authentic leader or a vulnerable leader? Or how, how do you kind of figure out what that is for yourself? And then, right. you know. Um, not be afraid of whatever the risks you may think are with that. Right. And and that's what I would say. Don't be afraid to discover who you are. Okay. Don't fight it. You know, shortly after I moved to NIPSCO, I had uh, two employees that were involved with a two in, on the electric side of the business. They were involved with, uh, with an accident up in a bucket truck and they were some other part of, of uh, Indiana than, than where I was. And the minute I got the call, I called my COO and I said, order that, get the helicopter. I want to fly up there. And he said to me, why would you want to go up there? I'm saying, I got two employees near death. Yeah. You doggone right. I'm going up there. So I went up by myself and, and I'm telling you, Paula, when I got to that hospital, they were in different hospitals. When I got to the first child, the most severe guy, when I got to the hospital, 
I knew his family was there, and this guy had six kids. And all I could think of was they were going to blame me for this accident as head of the company. And I just had to prepare myself for that. Um, but when I got up there, his wife and four, of the, three of the kids, because two were young and one was in Chicago, they were so impressed that I came up there. They were just thanking me so unbelievable that I actually had to leave that hospital and go outside and cry. I just felt like this wasn't right. Why should they, why should they be saying all the wonderful things they're saying about me when their husband and dad is laying in there, and quite honestly, dying? And I called Ann, and Ann said, where are you? I said, outside. She said, get someplace where nobody can see you. I mean, I just lost it. I just, I just lost it. And they were so impressed that I flew up there on that helicopter to see them. And I said, where's your son? She said, he's in Chicago trying to figure out how to get him. I said, I'm going to send this helicopter to go get him. And I sent the helicopter to go get him and fly him back to this place. And we were all there together. A day later, the guy died. And the other guy was okay. The day later, the guy died. And <clears throat> we went, Ann and I went to the funeral. And there again, I, I didn't know what was going to be the reaction of all the employees and stuff about that. But they were all very embracing. Uh, but a week later, I flew back up there. Uh, met the whole family at the at the airport in, in town so they could all take a ride on a helicopter. They were so impressed with this helicopter. I said, <laughs> I said you guys just ride. Just just ride till you get dizzy. <laughs> you know? And I'm going to tell you, Paula, maybe a month ago, I ran across the card that the oldest daughter wrote me, a handwritten card. She, she wrote me to thank me for how well the company treated them and their family as a result of that stuff. You can't buy, that has to be who you are. Yeah. That just has to be who you are. And you don't let anybody get in the way of the, of the you, you know, that you are. That's how you be authentic. That's hard sometimes, but it's rewarding, not only to you, but people around you. And it's important that people see that. And don't, don't be the person you think they need you to be, be who you are and live with that. Mm -hmm. Well, that's the, well, that's, the right person for that job or the right person for that situation or not be that and don't try to be something else. It's easy. It's easy. It was easy for me to be emotional at this setting. It was easy. I felt, I felt truly responsible for this guy felt responsible for him. And, and I, I felt, where should I be other than right? Here? And that was the day that Ann and I were taking Sinead to KU to do a campus visit. Mm -hmm. And I called and said, I can't go. Another one of those things, I, I, I can tell you a whole bunch of times that kind of stuff happened where I realized it took me a long time, Paul, to realize this is something I said, something else I'll say about being authentic. It took me a long time to realize, it took me over 20 years to realize this. But I spent my entire career doing all these things, trying to give my family what I knew, I, what they deserved. And all they really wanted was me. But the other thing that I realized in that was I had accepted the fact that my job was more important to me than my family. Because if it was not, there's a whole lot of things I wouldn't have left them to do without me. The job was more important. So think about that. Think about accepting that reality because you can't say anything else say anything else about it when you're missing your kids this you're missing your kids that you're not going to this because you got to work you're not going that you can't take your spouse here you think what does that say other than that job is more important than your family 
We all say, I'm not going to, this job is not big enough. And oh, in some cases it is. Just accept that. As long as you and your family accept that, you figure out how to work around it and work within it. And my family accepted that. But it was 20 years before I accepted that reality. I hear that from myself. Accepting that the job was more important than your family in that moment does not equate to you not loving your family or your family not loving you. Doesn't really equate to your family being unimportant. Right. Right. It just means that in this point in time, and I might suggest because I know you that, yeah, the job was more important to you than your family sometimes. 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 Not all the time. No, 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 no. But sometimes. Make that distinction so people don't think it was always more important to you. That's not right. No, 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 no. no. There were times when it was more important. Yeah. Um, Sinead was in 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 ninth grade and the seniors of high school would write these portfolios about what they did in high school and what they want to do out of high school. And so the school would ask me to come over and read some of those and, and share my feedback with the students. And Sinead was not a senior yet in school. She was in the 10th grade, I think. And she asked me, she said, have you ever read Sinead's portfolio? I said, no. She said, I'll let you read it, but you can't tell her that I did. I said, okay. So she brought it to me. I went in the room and read it. I was so proud of my kid and what she had done until I got it, ran on this letter that she had written. And it was all about all of the things she was not going to do when she got married and, and started working. She was not going to leave home at night and go back to work. She was not. All the things she saw me doing was in that letter. I thought, good Lord. Oh, did that hurt? But that was my reality. But I would wait until after dinner and close time for them to go to bed before I'd go back to the office. But this shit, I'd work most of the night. Yeah. Come home nap and go right back in the morning. Because I didn't know everything, Paula. I sure. didn't know everything. But I was expected to know enough to make decisions. So I had to do a lot of reading. Okay. And look, and, and here's what I, I believe for sure, because I think Sine is a phenomenal young woman, is that the things that she said she would never do in ninth grade, mm-hmm. some of those things she's probably going to do. She, and she, some of them she's doing now. Right. And she has <laughs> her own family. Mm-hmm. Like, because yep. this is a sense of perspective. Yep. Um, yep. You've said so much that I actually... Like, I just want to say thank you. Oh. Thank you, really. Um, we have, I consider you a friend and a mentor. I've known you for literally 20 years. Wow. That's we a lot of laughs. There's a lot of hearty horrors <laughs> in those 20 years. Um, but I think I want to leave us with this idea of authentic, vulnerable leadership, um, the importance of taking care of yourself mm-hmm. um, so that you can be to those that you lead who they need you to be. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's wonderful. Thank I you. I wish for I had that. said that. <laughs> I said it. You did say it. Uh-huh. I just said it different. That's my yeah. special skill. <laughs> yeah. I, ever since we've known each other, you've translated <laughs> for me. <laughs> exactly. And kept you've your always put it together. Evidently, <laughs> and also <laughs> kept your calendar. Everybody knew they could call you if they were looking for me. <laughs> and, and still today, yeah. <laughs> probably could make it happen. Yeah. So I appreciate that. Thank you for that. Thank you for listening to this great conversation with Barrett Hatches. Please follow us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. And for all things Abe, see, check out our website at www.aabe.org. Next week, we have Frank Reynolds, president of Berkshire Gas 
joining us. And remember, this is your host, Paula Glover, always bet on black. I went back to my unit and I had all these great ideas. I'm like, you know, again, I'm 19 years old at this time, I think. And, and um, my sergeant, we had this exchange and my sergeant, uh, who was this older white guy, says to me, you know, you know you're not paid to think, and he gave me a broom. And here I was, undergraduate, ready to do great things. And I was like, it really I set me back. Really sent me back, um, you know. So um, my response to that was, you know, I went to Officer Cannon School, uh, and and 18 months later I was his boss, and I handled it. But uh, my point is, uh, you know, so going back to where I was in, in terms of the topic, I realized that ideas is what um, not only the military wanted and needed, but so was corporate America. They wanted ideas, so. That's where the idea around creating the visual works.